It was the era of Walden books, Crown books, Bookland, and the early start of Borders. It was the era of You Can't Do That on Television and Clarissa Explaining It All. Grunge bands ruled the airwaves, the O.J. Simpson car chase was the biggest thing live news had ever seen, and the first web browser just went online. While all this was happening, four girls in Stony Brook, Connecticut were plotting how to take their little babysitting business, run out of Claudia Kishi's bedroom, and turn it into a global empire. The Babysitter's Club, founded by a ragtag team of four seventh-grade girls, Christy, Marianne, Claudia, and Stacy, would take on everything from babies to dogs, snowstorms to shipwrecks, divorce, death, and any and everything in between. Over time, the BSC grew to 10 members, and the series comprised 213 books, which have sold more than 176 million copies worldwide. What began as a humble idea in the late 1980s and early 90s exploded into a phenomenon like none other. Hello and welcome to Annotated. I'm Jeff O'Neill. And I'm Rebecca Shinsky. In this episode, a deep dive into the legacy and longevity of Anne M. Martin's powerhouse series, The Babysitter's Club. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated. So Negative Space by Jillian Linden follows a week in the life of an English teacher at a New York private school. At home, her children ask constant questions about mortality and her husband offers occasional counsel between Zoom calls. At school, something happens. She accidentally witnesses an ambiguous, possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student. But how can she be sure of what she saw? Negative Space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't, and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world. It's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought-provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic-focused, and it really just looks at everyday anxieties and low-threat situations that have high consequences. So make sure to check out Negative Space by Jillian Linden. And thanks again to W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated for sponsoring this episode. The Babysitter's Club entered the world in 1986. In the decades since, it has spun off into side series, graphic novel series, a standalone film, a TV series, board games, as well as contemporary audiobooks and a Netflix series. Why is it readers love this series so much? What gives the Babysitter's Club series staying power unlike any other for young readers? Why does this fandom thrive, and how does it remain a welcoming, inclusive community? David Levithan, an award-winning young adult author, as well as publisher and editorial director at Scholastic, began his career at the peak of Babysitter's Club popularity. 
suddenly was being paid to think like a 13-year-old girl and found that that actually worked pretty well. And that whereas I and my friends were were a little older than the target audience of the series when it launched, um, I found many of my friends had younger siblings who were devoted, devoted fans. And I therefore had the coolest job in the universe, according to them. By the time Levithan joined Scholastic, there were already more than 50 books in the series, and there was no end in sight. Started with it already being a hit um, to a degree that really was almost unprecedented. And I think that it was just sort of astonishing to see that usually a series ran for 10 or 12 books if it was lucky, with the exception of something like the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. Most series had a nice life and then they ended. But the Babysitter's Club was just getting started. There were all the spinoffs and there were such devoted fans that it really was a question of like, how many stories can we tell? Before we get too far down that road, though, let's go back to book one. The Babysitter's Club begins with Christie's great idea. Christie's single mother, who usually relies on Christie, her older brother, and a rotation of sitters, is desperate to find someone to watch Christie's younger siblings. When she's unable to find a sitter one day, Christie has an idea. What if people seeking a babysitter could call one number at a specific time and date each week and reach a number of potential sitters at once? She presents the idea to best friend and neighbor Marianne, who loves it. Then they bring in Claudia Kishi, who suggests inviting Stacy McGill. And thus, the Babysitter's Club is born. The series was initially planned to be just four books, but Scholastic quickly recognized that they had a hit on their hands and ordered more. As the shelves of Babysitter's Club books filled up, the club itself was also growing. By the end of the series, the BSC boasted 10 members. Clearly, something very special was happening. The whole premise, the whole idea of the Babysitter's Club was so like ahead of its time in a way, because it's these young women coming into their own, but they're entrepreneurs and they're strong and they're like finding work for themselves and it's a we can do it attitude. So it was pretty cool at that time of being 11, 11, 12, to be exposed to that sort of positive role model. Skylar Fisk played Christy in the Babysitter's Club film, which came out in 1995. I really loved that Christy was like the leader. I loved that she was a tomboy and she was strong and she... She was a go-getter. During the movie, we have a summer camp. And she's leading the kids with a bullhorn and telling people where to go and organizing it. And it's a lot of work. And she just, she has no fear. And I thought that that was really cool. And she was friends with the guys, which I liked. Like, I just thought she was a, a cool girl. And I thought her confidence was really something special. It's empowering to see confident, can-do, go-getter girls and women in books and on screen at any stage of life. But the BSC reached its audience at a particularly important time. Because that age, middle school age, is so hard. And kids can be so mean and so tough. And even your closest friends can be horrible to you. So to be able to, like, tap into someone with, like, an inner strength like that was really beneficial for my own personal life. And it's not just the character's outward behavior that was inspiring. The girls had rich personal lives, and they were diverse in a way that was rare to see at the time. Christy came from a family of divorce that saw a remarriage and blended family. Marianne was raised by a protective single father after her mother's death. Stacy had diabetes and was nervous to tell her new friends about it. And Dawn moved from California with her mother after her parents divorced. And more. Stony Brook featured characters like Claudia Kishi, a Japanese-American girl who was a superbly fashionable artist living with a high-achieving sister, a beloved grandmother, and married parents. For award-winning comic artist and author Yumi Tsukugawa, Claudia offered an opportunity to see herself on the page. I love Claudia Kishi 
not just because she is Asian American and Japanese American like me. The other thing that resonated so much with me is that she is an artist like me. And growing up, there were hardly any Asian American characters, Asian American girl characters. And so to find one Asian American character who was Japanese American, a girl, a creative person, that was just like finding a unicorn. I felt like I probably came across her when I was eight or nine years old. And so to have this cool 13-year-old girl who was artsy and considered cool and popular and well-loved and well-respected by her peers, I think that was just this narrative for me that I just didn't find anywhere else. Eugene Myers, an award-winning YA science fiction author, agrees. But Claudia, I think she didn't stand out just because she was Asian, but she stood out because she was like very different. She made a point of having her own style. And the thing I maybe remembered about her more than her being Asian is like she was an artist. She was also on the cover of some of the books. Like how many Asians were on the covers of children's books ever? Even today, that's much less common than it should be. That Claudia was visible at all was a big deal, but it's how she showed up that really made an impact. She was not ashamed of being her own person, because I think that as somebody growing up as an Asian kind of living among uh, mostly like other you know white people, you kind of try to fit in. You're already drawing attention because you look different from everyone else, but she was kind of like owning it and and being different for other other reasons. So that's not necessarily the first thing someone would even necessarily know is, oh, she's Asian. It's like, oh, no, she's got this really cool outfit or she look at her earrings. Stony Brook and the Babysitter's Club were also home to dancer Jessie Ramsey and her family, who were among the very few Black people in town. Remarkably, the books addressed the racism and hostility the Ramseys experienced head-on. Emma Marfo, an independent higher education professional, writer, and editor, grew up with the series and found herself identifying with the different girls at different times. I think of the original four, I was probably closest to a Claudia, and then as other people kind of started coming in and out, there were parts of me that really liked Dawn. There were parts that felt a lot like a Mallory. Once Jesse came along, there were some similarities there as well. And I think there are a lot of things to be said about finding somebody that looks like you in a book. And at that point, there really weren't that many, especially talking about some of the other reading that I'd been doing. It was really, really white. And I lived in an area that was really, really white. So that was very much my reality. Then Jesse showed up and Emma found a deeper connection to the series. It was the same circumstances. It was somebody who was right around school going age who took ballet. I was also taking ballet who had a younger sibling that was premature. Same. So there were a lot of parallels that came from pretty deep within the literature and how the character was introduced. It was amazing for Emma to be able to see herself in Jesse. But when other people started identifying her with the character, things got more complicated. There's a difference between identifying yourself as a character and somebody else identifying you as a character. And for me, anytime I was identified as a Jesse, it felt purely cosmetic, purely appearance-ridden, just like, you're the black character and there's a black character, ergo, that's you. So it felt like a more quickly arrived at, less nuanced idea of, who are you most like? It's like, well, I see you look like this person, therefore that's who you are. And that was really different from how I came to identify as the character. As David Levithan said earlier, most series have a nice life and then they end. 
If they're lucky enough to be beloved, they live on in their fans' nostalgia-fueled memories. And it takes more than nostalgia to give a series staying power for generations of readers. In The Babysitter's Club, there's something more than a cast of archetypal characters that keeps it relevant and powerful. For Yumi, the series is a portal to a time and space that was real and honest, without being cloying or too much like an after-school special. It didn't suffer from the one-dimensionality that so-called issue books or problem novels from the same time frame did. It's just this great, safe space where you get to explore through these characters what it means to be both a kid and also a responsible person who takes care of other people's kids. Every book just has such a nuanced lesson on dealing with toxic friends or dealing with uh, friends who change in ways that make you uncomfortable or dealing with heartbreak and boys or teachers who don't like you. I, I feel like because they sort of gave themselves permission to be frozen in time and to go through every iteration of what a middle schooler would go through, they then created this whole library of young adult experiences that an 8 to 12-year-old girl can explore safely in the comfort of these very predictable and reliable characters. It was this comforting worldview that no matter what, you have friends you can rely on. And if you're a good person, you will be rewarded. Levithan agrees, adding that the entire building of Stony Brook as a world made a space for readers not just to escape, but to really belong. Talk about world building in terms of like science fiction universes and fantasy universes. But, but Stony Brook was as much of an exercise in world building as any other literary venture. And I think that that what was so amazing for readers was that they, they could, for the two or three hours it took to read the book, could live there. And they got to know the people, they got to know the, the babysitters, the babysitting charges, the families. And so you would just escape into that world. And it wasn't a fantasy world. It wasn't a Sweet Valley High world where people weren't really like you. They were like this fantasy version of popular people. Instead, it was like a lot of people like you that were articulating a lot of things that you didn't necessarily know how to articulate yet. That sense of connection and belonging turned BSC readers into devoted fans. The series nurtured this relationship over 213 books that all stayed true to the world of Stony Brook, allowing readers to stay true to it as well. And the fact that the girls were young entrepreneurs, that didn't hurt either. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Taming Seven is an epic and unforgettable love story in the international best-selling and TikTok phenomenon, The Boys of Tom and Series, from Chloe Walsh. So Tommen's cheekiest lad, Jared Gibsey Gibson, has always been a comedian, but inside he is haunted by events of the past and he uses humor to cope, hiding his true self from the world. Then you have Claire Biggs, who is the epitome of sunshine. She's always loved Gibsy, her brother's friend and her favorite neighbor. She also has always seen a side to him that no one else seems to notice, and she becomes determined to tame her wild-at-heart childhood best friend. So The Boys of Tommen series is an internationally best-selling YA romance series that has taken TikTok by storm. It's perfect for readers looking for new adult slash crossover romance, dual point of views, friends to lovers, marathon worthy TikTok books, and angsty tearjerkers. Taming Seven is published today and it's the fifth book in the series. So make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo. 
This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books. And so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players. But what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive, even the help of Guillén Santangel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at LeeBardugoTheFamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo for sponsoring this episode. Emma credits being exposed to young girls taking charge in building their own company as inspiration for her career. So I remember around fourth or fifth grade, I got really into making bows and packaging decorations, like out of wrapping paper, and I wanted to sell them in the neighborhood. So I wrote this business plan, typed it up, presented it to my dad, and asked for him to invest in it. I remember that kind of direct connection from kids started a business, I could start a business. And then later on, women starting businesses, I could do that for myself. So absolutely, it's leaked in a couple different ways. Here again, the sheer volume of books in the series plays a key role. It wasn't just one story about girls running a business. It was hundreds of them. Skylar Fisk adds that seeing such a template of friendship made and continues to make a huge impression. I think it's just a special thing that Anne and Martin created and that people connect with. When you boil it down, it's about friendships and confidence and all these things that we all struggle with, not just when we're young, but our whole lives. And, you know, relationships and things that are going on with your family and work balance and and trying to get ahead. Those never get old. Those never go out of style. I really like the, like the sisterhood that the girls have, the friendship. Sometimes girls... Um, struggle with girl-girl friendships because there's a competition like, oh, is she prettier than me? Is she better than me? Is she smarter than me and better at sports? And Skylar would know. 20 years on, she remains friends with the women who played her fellow babysitters in the original movie. (laughs) 33 years and 176 million copies later, the Babysitter's Club remains part of contemporary culture and is a loyal, welcoming, and enduring fandom. It started early, growing up alongside the internet itself. Early fan sites like What Claudia Wore and live journal communities emerged prior to social media, but as technology and indeed social media expanded, so did the possibilities for sharing love, sharing art, and sharing passion for the series. Jack Shepard and Tanner Greer are the co-hosts of the podcast The Babysitter's Club Club. The show, which chronicles two men in their 30s reading and discussing the series, grew out of Jack's passion for the books, which started when he was young. My history with The Babysitter's Club is that when I moved to the U.S. from England, I think I was probably seven or eight years old, my best and only friend was my cousin, and so I spent a lot of time hanging out at her house, and uh, she just had this entire library of BSC books and Sweet Valley High, and so I just ended up sitting in her room and reading the books. There's something unique about these books that is, it's like, it's all girls and it's girls working together and like being like entrepreneurial and there's something that's fun 
and cool about that. And it's kind of the opposite of Sweet Valley High, which is like girls fighting with each other over boys. Um, and the Babysitter's Club, it seemed like, chose to do the opposite of that. And I think that that is a big part of what the lasting value is. I do think like reading them again with fresh eyes, I'm, I'm like impressed. Like any media, the BSC books are a product of their time. But it's clear, even reading them through today's lens, that a lot of care and energy went into presenting diverse characters and perspectives. And it's especially compelling when taken alongside another popular series of the day, Sweet Valley High. We just read a book, um, a Sweet Valley High like super special, to guest on a podcast called Sweet Valley Diaries. There's one character, and she is like is deaf. And the way they deal with her deafness in Sweet Valley High is that they like send her to the most expensive surgeon in the world and cure her. And in Babysitter's Club, like they just have a deaf character called Matt Braddock and he's deaf and everybody has to learn ASL. I think that contrast really brings brings out what like the genuine effort that was made throughout these books to make them interesting and make them real and make them true to different people's perspectives. And I think that that has been really fun. Although they didn't predict the popularity of their podcasts, Jack says he and Tanner aren't entirely surprised either. The BSC has a loyal fan base, and from what Jack himself experienced in the early online fandom, he knew the series was deeply loved. The classic, all-time great Babysitter's Club fan-based creation is the blog What Claudia Wore. It goes through each book and talks about um, what Claudia wore that week, which like could be a, an entire podcast of itself. Um, I'm realizing there's a series of stuff that's called, I think, BSC Snark that was like live journal culture. Like there's this, like there were these cool artifacts from a different internet that was like probably 2005 onward, where people kind of, you know, in a way that that is similar to what we were trying to do with the podcast, like revisited these books as adults and picked out what was fun about it and what was silly about it. The BSC's first wave of fans came of age before blogs, online communities, and social media were even a thing. So when they did eventually go online and find each other, they had 20 years worth of nostalgia to pour into the fandom. It is so much fun to literally 20 or 30 years later share experiences of these things that we only at the time, like I talked to my cousin about it and that was it. And I certainly didn't talk to the boys at school about it. I think that that's the really fun thing about about like any nostalgic property, but especially something that it has to have this lasting value, um, which I think that the BSC really does. Fan projects about the series often have legs as Yumi saw when she created her fanzine, Claudia Kishi, My Asian American Female Role Model. What started as a feature for one site connected her to a wealth of fellow Claudia and Babysitter's Club fans worldwide. I made my comic in my late 20s because I was noticing around that time that my contemporaries who grew up reading the Babysitter's Club, they were starting to write their own nostalgia blog pieces and essays. It was exciting for me to see my peers touch upon a book series that was very near and dear to my heart. And what I really wanted was for somebody to acknowledge how cool Claudia was, but from this Asian American perspective. Yumi's first big break came when she shared a link to her comic on Angry Asian Man, a popular pop culture blog at the time, and the creator Phil Yu tweeted and shared it to his large following. I just got such an overwhelming response from many Asian American women who 
were just like, oh my God, yeah, I totally feel what you're feeling. Claudia Kishi was this one Asian American girl character I had growing up. And it just elicited such a personal, intimate response that just reminded me so much of how empowering and personal and intimate it is to see yourself, to see somebody who looks like you reflected in books and TV and movies. While the fandoms of some franchises meet new iterations of their beloved series with skepticism and even backlash, Emma believes that for the BSC, the new takes help the originals endure. Fans both new and seasoned greet them with openness and enthusiasm. I wonder if some of it, too, is associated with who we were in a lot of ways when that source material came out and how it existed. So like the idea of it feeling really communal and like it's something that people, again, can engage with for the most part civilly, that's who we were when we first got to it. And I think in some ways it kind of brings us back. That's an important and powerful distinction when many fandoms seem to thrive on one-upmanship and the currency of trivia rather than community and connection. But that's not who we were when we read these books. And I think that being able to engage with it again in that kind of like wholesome way might be indicative of maybe some things that are missing other places or that other fandoms maybe don't necessarily encourage or have core to their being. Naya Cookoff, the executive producer on the forthcoming Netflix adaptation of the series, also notes that it's a series that spans generations now, as those who grew up with the babysitters now have the chance to share these stories with their children. In an era where there's so much fractured enjoyment of entertainment, everyone can stream from their own personal devices, stories like the BSC allow for a powerful bonding experience. We over at Walden are always looking for these kind of co-viewing moments, and they're so few and far between now, but there's something so special about characters that you loved as a child and really helped shape your own personal identity, and being able to share that with your kids. Like, to me, that's a really special thing. The legacy of the BSC is, of course, also the legacy of creator and author Anne M. Martin. Though she didn't write the entire series, she's credited with writing the first 35 books in the original series and has had a hand in the creation of each and every book since. Shannon Supple is the lead steward of the Mortimer Rare Book Collection, part of Smith College Special Collections. The Mortimer Collection is home to the Anne M. Martin Papers. Martin is an alumna of Smith College, which were donated to the school in 2013. The collection includes synopses, outlines, drafts, proposals, and myriad other material related to her work on the Babysitter's Club. These materials are so wonderful because they illuminate her writing and creative process over time. So you can dig into um, her creative process around a very specific edition of a particular um, Babysitter's Club book. Or you can look sort of across at how, how did things change and how did her process shift and change from the Babysitter's Club series to the Little Sisters series to Main Street to some of the later work that she's been working on. What strikes Supple about the papers, and indeed what resonates with readers, is how much work Martin put into crafting books that featured not just well-rounded characters, but also into doing the research to ensure that issues raised in the books were presented with sensitivity and honesty for young readers. You can see that she would actually go into scholarly journals, she would go into newspaper articles and read up on that particular area so she would be able to create depth and speak from a place of knowledge around some of these hard issues. Perhaps one of the big reasons so many readers have such fondness for the series and continue to think about how much it has inspired them and continues to inspire them comes from the way Martin constructed the books. 
where characters matter and where plot matters, Supple says something else stands out. Her synopses include how she expects the story to evoke feeling in the reader at particular points. So in the synopses, she'll say her goal is for the readers to have positive feelings toward a particular character or group. So she's not necessarily even at that stage building um, a character or the plot. She's saying that my goal, you know, through chapter two is that the reader will feel connected and and like these particular characters or this particular circumstance. And that's what marks Martin as a master of her craft. She's never just planning what happens to whom. She's always thinking about how it will make readers feel and what it will do for them. Naya agrees and believes that is this blueprint Martin made in the initial series is precisely why it remains relevant and viable in today's pop culture landscape. Bringing the girls into today's era for their new show, she says, really only meant thinking about the big challenges they'd be facing now and that, when originally published, weren't necessarily in the cultural zeitgeist. It's dealing with issues that kids today are dealing with, taking, you know, things like divorced parents that step further, talking about same-sex couples, talking about, you know, just the things that are just a given in our modern world that I think back then weren't weren't at all in the popular conversation. At the same time, you know, we are trying to make a more kind of inclusive landscape for our girls. So there is, Stony Brook is going to feel a little bit more like modern times. I think that it's going to feel like a very diverse, really fully fleshed out place. And then that's going to include some of our girls as well. And as so much of life in modern times is influenced by technology, the girls of the BSC have unique relationships to it and experiences with it. Someone like Stacy was cyberbullied at her last school, and that's part of the reason why she's, you know, moved to Stony Brook. Someone like a Claudia, who's got a sister who's a tech genius, probably is a little bit more of a Luddite and just really doesn't like modern technology. And, like, that's a whole wave of kids today as well, the ones that are going back to flip phones and stuff. So we're playing with all of those things at the same time, trying to keep it as timeless as possible. Because, you know, at the end of the day, your friendships with your girlfriends, your relationships with your parents, your first crushes, all of those things are so universal and, you know, have been issues for young girls and will continue to be issues for young girls for all time. Today, it's not just nostalgic readers of a certain age who feel connected to the BSC. It's young readers, too. New formats invite new readerships who are brought into the multi-generational fold of lifetime fans. I continue to be surprised at what a deep impact that movie has made and continues to make to people, to like the new generation of kids that are watching it but also the people that are, you know, in their 30s and that grew up with it. There's something in its simplicity that's really connected with a lot of people and continues to. And and I don't think I even realized that in the beginning when I started reading the books and when I made the movie, but I think that as I've gotten older and looking back and to see how it's grown and how that our fans of the movie grow with us and continue to and the new generations become hip to it. Now they're doing new projects like this Netflix series it's so exciting for all of us. Shannon agrees. One of the uh, the fun moments um, I had in one of my first few weeks on the job at Smith was a girl who was about, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years old, maybe a little older, maybe 10, walked into the library with her mom and sort of asked shyly if we had some special information about the Babysitter's Club. Um, you know, she's kind of looking down at her feet and her mom was encouraging her to ask the questions that she wanted. And it was so fun because her mom clearly 
only had known her interests and brought her to the right place to learn more um, about what we had. And I was just delighted because she was so excited to see things like outlines and book covers. I thought, is this 10-year-old, is this you know 9-year-old going to be interested in these <laughs> materials? But it was special for her and it was special to see Anne's handwriting and how sort of the, the work of developing um, a book that has a lot of meaning to her. I thought that was so much fun. That was just a few years ago. And with a Netflix series on the horizon, Supple anticipates even more continued interest in the BSC. The world of Stony Brook is vast and rich, offering readers many points of entry and plenty space to bring their own perspective and ideas. Yumi believes that this is a key reason the stories resonate with readers and will continue to find new fans, both young and old. I feel like it's just this interesting portal where everyone's eternally 13 and they go they go through all the seasons multiple times and it's it, it's just this great safe space where you get to explore through these characters what it means to be both a kid and also a responsible person who takes care of other people's kids to go through every iteration of what a middle schooler would go through I felt like they then created this whole library of young adult experiences that an eight to two-year-old girl can explore safely in the comfort of these very predictable and reliable characters. We really can't overstate how notable this is. Levithan notes that we haven't yet seen another realistic series with the staying power of the BSC. I mean, one of the things we talk about now is sort of, could it could it happen again? That, that was it because of sort of the market being what it was, at that time in the 80s, that something that is so much about reality could go for so many books and could create a world like that. But as far as sort of an everyday series, I don't think there has been anything like it. I think it really is unique. And more, says Eugene, it's possible we won't see something like this again, because the premise of the stories couldn't be replicated today. If you were to actually try to make a truly contemporary version of the Babysitter's Club, like it wouldn't work. Today, we've got you know, care.com and like websites and everybody has to be vetted. You have to have like all these references. When I'm looking for a babysitter, I'm like, do you know CPR? Do you know first aid? Try to meet people so that you know that they're not going to hurt your child or whatever. Like there's all these scary stories about babysitters and, and just the idea of like teenage girls going to strangers' houses. Some of those, some of those elements in today's society really seem strange. And so I think that possibly some of the modern day appeal for it is not even a nostalgia because kids wouldn't remember this, but just like a simpler time, right? There's like a, an innocence to it all that I think you, know, you, find, you can find appealing. It's about more than nostalgia. It's about more than yearning for a simpler time. It's about an innocence and a universal connection to characters who experience the same kinds of real life things that young people do. Naya agrees, referencing a phrase Jack and Tanner use on the Babysitter's Club Club podcast and suggesting that, similar to classics like Little Women, the Babysitter's Club allows for each generation to connect, to share, and to make these stories their own. It's almost universal, but at the same time, it's so deeply personal. Everyone has their own kind of relation to the series, and that's, that's what's really cool about it. The girls will always and forever, to borrow a phrase from the Babysitter's Club Club, be encased in amber at the age of 13. This is a series about being accepting and tolerant of all. And it's just about being a good person. There's something about like the things that you loved as a kid that put you into a really kind of vulnerable, like happy place.
This episode of Annotated was written and produced by Kelly Jensen. Sound editing and design by Kyle O'Neill. Special thanks to David Levithan, whose latest book, Someday, is in stores now. Emma Marfo, whom you can find at amamarfo.com. Skylar Fisk, whose music you can find at skylarfisk.com. And Shannon Supple at the Smith College Libraries. Thanks also to E.C. Myers, whose book, After the Fall, is in stores now. Yumi Sakugawa, whose books and comics you can find on her website, yumisakugawa.com. Jack Shepard, who co-hosts the podcast, The Babysitter's Club Club, and Naya Kukov, executive producer of the forthcoming Netflix Babysitter's Club series. You can follow Annotated on Instagram at AnnotatedFM. And if you like the show, the best, most helpful thing you could do is leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, read something great.